So far we have talked about ethics in AI and how we should combine fairness, trustworthiness and safety when building AI systems. In the third installment of this episode, I'd like to kick off with this question. How should we treat AIs? So about four years ago, we had the first AI citizen called Sophia. And I think that this is going to become more of the norm in the future. So then how should we treat uh, the artificial intelligences? I think that's a really interesting question. I remember seeing a Dilbert comic. You must be familiar with the Dilbert comic, the sort of comic strip that you know tells funny jokes about the technology industry. <laughs> anyway, this Dilbert comic was you know making a joke of the fact that ten years ago your average middle manager in an IT organisation you know would pride themselves on the fact that they were managing you know. 30 developers or 50 developers or whatever it happened to be. And in the future, you know, we may be asking questions that have nothing to do with how many human beings you're managing, but they're entirely to do with how many artificial intelligences you're managing, or indeed how much of your work is being managed itself by an artificial intelligence. And I think that's a very interesting question, isn't it? What happens when rather than having a human being measuring your output and deciding whether it's good or bad, you've actually got an artificial intelligence measuring your output and telling you whether or not it's good or bad. What does that do to the kind of social and societal impacts on our workforces when that's the case? I want to share with you just really as a personal comment, more for reflection than anything else. I gave a a speech, I think it must be four or five years ago now, called Learning to Speak Machine, which was about the changes to human beings that living with sentient devices was you know, presenting to us. So what did it mean to have pervasive listening devices in our homes, you know, listening to us, responding to us, trying to predict what we would want or how we would want it? Um, And how would that change our understanding of ourselves? And how would that change, you know, our understandings of what our homes were and how they might work? And one of the things, one of the points I made in this speech was that I was very annoyed that the home assistant that I at that point had in my house did not require please and thank you. So she and I call her she because they're all female at the moment, which is another annoying thing, but we'll leave that to one side for now. But she she did not need anything other than her name as a wake-up command, and she did not need a please and thank you in order to do anything. And my point was, I have spent the best part, my children are 15 and 13, I spent the best part of an entire decade teaching my children to say please and thank you. It doesn't matter how small the thing they were asking for, they were to say please and thank you. Why is some faceless technological entity allowing a device to come into my home that undermines my teaching to my children that they must be polite when they ask for something? And what does that mean? Are they going to learn that there's a category of entity which doesn't require manners that you just issue commands to? So now what starts to happen when, another lovely example, we started to see about four or five years ago, the first examples of children in, you know, when you are a small child in school and you get confused and instead of saying your teacher's name, you say mummy to the teacher. You know, you put your hand up because you want something and you mistake who is an adult in authority and you, you say mother instead of saying, you know, Miss, whatever her name is, Miss Smith. And it's very embarrassing if you're four or five years old, but it happens. 
What we started seeing three or four years ago is that children of that sort of age were putting their hands up and instead of saying mummy, they were saying Siri. <laughs> so now, where are we? Because now I've got a sentient authority device, yeah. which I don't have to say please and thank you to, that I'm now confusing for my teacher. And now put us in a world that we've been living in in the UK, certainly over the last nine months, where my schooling has all become remote. Significant amounts of my schooling are now being delivered over this sort of channel that we're speaking over now. So I'm even further divorced from a human to human interaction with that authority figure. I'm even more likely to confuse them with a pervasive and intelligent device. If I am not, if my basic pervasive intelligent device doesn't need manners from me how am I ever going to learn to be polite and have that kind of social grace that I think the world a lot of the time works on so you asked me the question we started from here with you asking the question how should we treat artificial intelligences and my first answer is we should treat artificial intelligences thoughtfully and we should understand that they are tools and assistance that help us and if somebody is helping you then you should be graceful and polite to them even if they are just machines mm. i think we're an incredibly long way away from the singular notion thing a general ai capability which will take over the world is not going to happen in my lifetime and i'd argue probably won't happen in my children's lifetime either but just on the off chance that it does aren't we in a better position if we've been polite to the ais now yeah. than if we haven't well, that's a very good question to put that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it fits into the bigger um, question about the coexistence of humans and uh, AIs, both at home and at the workplace, as you correctly mentioned. And most of the, the devices that we're using now, uh, be it the series, be it the uh, Amazon Alexa, are uh, in essence, you know, AI machines that are at home. So we have to strike that balance between the coexistence of machines and humans. Yeah, we do. And the other thing I would like to also, um, and again, I, I've given a couple of speeches on this, and uh, if people want to look them up, they're very welcome to. Uh, you can find them through my LinkedIn site. But um, one of the things that I genuinely have concerns about, I joke about the singularity, and I do think that's a very long way off. There is a, an outcome of ever more um, intelligent assisted lives that I am more concerned about, in fact, than the idea that the robots are going to take over the world. I mean, I suppose in some senses the robots have already taken over the world. It's just that they don't have evil intent in quite the way that Hollywood would like us to believe that they do. But one of the things I genuinely am concerned about is the degree to which we are being extracted away from creativity. So, you know, when I was a teenager, which is a long time ago now, 30 years ago, I was taught in school how to fix my car, I could remove my spark plugs, I could change the fan belt. You know, there were a small number of mechanical things I could do that if my car broke down, I could maybe get it running enough to get it to a garage and get it fixed by a mechanic. And 30 years ago, when you lifted up the bonnet of your car, you know, didn't matter which car you lifted the bonnet up of, you could kind of point out where all the bits were and you sort of understood mechanically how it worked. <laughs> I can't do that anymore because even if I lift the bonnet of my car up, the entire engine housing is 
locked down. Right? I can't get into it. And even if I could get into it, it's not actually being controlled in the same way as it was when I was 15. It's actually being controlled by an onboard computer. So the fact that I push the pedal in order to, you know, accelerate is no longer having a direct mechanical impact it's having an impact on the onboard computer which is controlling the mechanical impact so i guess i offer that as an example because i worry about the degree to which we are allowing ourselves to be abstracted away from an understanding of the tools that we're using around us and the less we understand how they work the less creative we are able to be, the less we are able to work with our hands, the less we tap into a fundamental part of the human experience of the world, which is about making your world around you. And so that's something I think we need to think about when we think about the degree to which artificial intelligences make our lives easier, which is a great thing. And I wouldn't want to remove that, but I think we should be thoughtful about too much ease and too little demand for human ingenuity may make us really pretty stupid. And that's something I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the rise of the artificial intelligences. I'm worried about the decline of the human intelligences. That's a very good way to look at it. And so then I think we've looked at advice for the ethical side of AI and you know how we can enhance safety, trust and security or sustainability in all AI systems that we come up with. So then I'd move on to look at now the applications of AI. Uh, first of all, in just summarizing or highlighting some of the AI that we have seen uh, in the COVID world uh, during the pandemic because there have been a lot of good use cases of AI uh, in challenges that are being caused by the pandemic. So maybe just highlight a few of that and then we look at now post-COVID, given that lots of things are going to change, supply chains, how we do business, you know, uh, meetings and education, how is AI going to be uh, applied in a post-COVID world from your own uh, point of view? I mean, I think in the context of, and I'll just pick a few examples that I think tie back into this question of ethics and trustworthiness and safety. So I think one of the fascinating contexts here is the degree to which artificial intelligence potential can be constrained, rightly or wrongly, and it very much depends on the way that you think about this, by the ethical normalities of where you live. Okay, so if you think about test and trace um, techniques around the world, um, the degree to which governments and health authorities and the general populations of different countries around the world have responded to the idea of using a combination of their mobile device, geosensing and some kind of artificial intelligence to be able to map and implement containment policies for the spread of the virus. We've seen some incredibly effective deployments of the combination of mobile technology, geosensing technology and artificial intelligence in containing the spread of COVID-19, predominantly in Southeast Asia and South Korea. But one of the reasons that they have been so successful is because the ethical position in terms of constraints placed on individual freedoms by the governments and health authorities in those regions prioritizes the society, the impact on the society, over the freedom of the individual. And so it's ethically perfectly acceptable in those territories to have a combination of the government and the health authority surveilling you 
through your mobile device and understanding where you've gone and who you've been in touch with in order to protect the society from the spread of the disease. If you look at the same question in the United States or in the UK, where it is not ethically acceptable for the governments to surveil you, then there the test and trace applications that have been developed have been much more patchily adopted, they have been much less successful, they have seen a degree of being overwhelmed, or in some cases in the States they don't even exist, right? So there's a very interesting challenge there that whilst the potential of AI is huge, its ability to live up to that potential has to be delivered in an ethical framework. And sometimes the ethical normalities are, make it impossible for the full potential to be realised. I think the other thing that's been very interesting around COVID-19, it's less of an AI only approach, but there are degrees to which AI plays in it obviously very strongly, is this movement into online consumption and online transaction, even in situations where, normally speaking, your transactions would happen in the physical world. So if we think about you know, the incredible increase in both profits and transactions and sales that we've seen from online communications channels like the one we're using right now, but also arguably more interestingly, online retail environments where transactions that would normally happen face-to-face -face or in a physical location, certainly in parts of Europe, the UK, the USA, have moved much more strongly into the online world. It doesn't matter whether that's food or pharmaceuticals or clothing or accessories, you know, huge amounts of transfer. Obviously, the online purchasing dynamic was there before the pandemic, but it's increased exponentially. Now, I had an experience, again, this is a personal anecdote, but I had an experience recently where I was just I was fed up of buying things on the internet, right? Oh, for sake, I want to go into a shop and see a thing before I buy it. I actually want to transact like a human. And I went into a clothing shop and I tried to buy a pair of jeans. Now, I'm not sure how this works other than for me, but I find buying jeans very difficult because they never seem to fit in all the same, all the right places in quite the right way. So I like to try them on right before I buy them. And I went into this physical shop knowing that I wanted to see the product and I wanted to touch the product and I wanted to try the product on. <laughs> and what I discovered was this physical shop would not allow me to touch the product. I could see it, but I couldn't touch it. And I had to buy it before I tried it on, right? And take it home and try it on. And then if I didn't like it, I had to post it back. I'm like, this is now a worse experience than me buying online, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, if I go into a denim store online and I, I plug into their algorithm, the last pair of jeans I bought was this brand and I like the fit on the waist, but it didn't fit around my, my thighs properly then their algorithm is going to give me recommendations that are better than yeah. the experience of me going into a shop. Yeah. And I suddenly went, oh my goodness me, you know, am I ever going to get back into the high street in the same way again? Because actually that artificially intelligently mediated experience has even replaced something that was so profoundly physical as to what clothes you put on your body. Again, sorry for the personal anecdote, but I just thought it was a, you know, COVID AI development has partly been about how we understand the spread of the virus and about how we can try to help protect our societies against the spread of the virus. But 
alongside that, there is a transfer into artificially intelligently assisted transactions, which was already happening, which I think COVID has massively speeded up. And that's a double-edged sword, because that means we will live more and more of our lives in the abstracted digital world, and we risk losing the world that we value because it's real and physical in ways that I don't think we had perhaps anticipated before this crisis happened. Yeah, um, I think that is really, really well explained this example that you give. But maybe just to look at now our post-COVID world, uh, there's lots that has been said about, you know, the new normal and experiences like the one you just uh, given us about buying a pair of jeans. Uh, it could be the new normal that, you know, uh, physical stores will still be there, but it still require you to adhere some of the guidelines to avoid the spread of the virus. How is the eye sort of center stage of uh, a post-COVID world, especially when you look at healthcare? Because I think, uh, for instance, the African continent, we've seen a lot of efforts by the government of Rwanda to use like drone to basically deliver blood and in, uh, in remote areas. So we've seen use cases of AI and robotics uh, in healthcare, and we're going to see lots more in, say, manufacturing and industrial companies. So how do we see AI now playing a center stage in a post-COVID world? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the exciting things across the African continent is obviously the development of the Africa Free Trade Agreement. And, you know, hopefully as that gets implemented over time, I think that that creates intra-trade opportunities across Africa between African nations, which could be a really extraordinary, uh, create an extraordinary capacity for the kind of artificial intelligence assistance that allows for products and services, whether that's healthcare, whether it's power generation, whether it's education, to reach um, otherwise quite sparsely distributed populations, individuals who um, maybe don't have the kind of physical infrastructure or don't have reliable physical infrastructure available to them and henceforth, you know, or previously haven't been able to get access to those services reliably. There's enormous potential there. I think it's very exciting to see how some African governments, particularly Kenya and Rwanda and uh, Tanzania and Uganda, have been trying to take leadership in developing the kind of flexible and dynamic regulatory systems that are going to need to be in place to really take advantage of the combination of mobility technologies and artificial intelligence technologies and indeed data-driven predictive technology. So I think all three of those things are critical in particularly in healthcare and education sectors. So that combination of mobility and being able to um, deliver goods and services, whether those are people-driven services or whether those are um, artificially intelligently delivered goods, you know, using drones as you've suggested. I think mobility is critical because obviously the population in Africa is across the continent, notwithstanding you know, large pocket of city-based uh, urban conurbations, but a lot of the population is in, in areas where accessibility to infrastructure and accessibility to services is significantly limited. But I think along with mobility and along with the capability of artificially intelligent assistance, data is critical because for the business models for those services to work, 
the providers of those services need to be confident that they're able to tailor the assistance and the goods and services to the specific needs of the populations yeah. that they're reaching. And so I think it will be very interesting how Africa as a continent approaches questions of data and data sharing. And we talked a little bit about this last time, but you know, how liberalized Africa's approach to data protection is and whether or not that encourages you know, a very open capitalist free-for-all type market or whether there are more controls placed around data protection rather more in the manner of the European Union's approach to data uh, in order to protect citizens from some of the business practices of the more libertarian parts of the technology market. So I think it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how the African Union um, takes some of that thinking forward and how the continent and the leaders across the continent, the leading countries across the continent, respond to the opportunity there. Yeah, um, and I think that's interesting because even as the African Union and uh, Africa as a whole, we explore you know, the African free continental trade area agreement to kick in place sometime next year. Uh, we've seen a lot of each individual country just uh, going the mile to actually now put in place data protection laws because I think South Africa now has a draft law for data protection. Uh, back home in Kenya recently, started looking for a data protection commissioner, so it would be mandated with coming up with laws to basically govern the use and the sharing of data. So I think it's mm. that uh, individual uh, countries are actually putting in place that uh, the mechanism to actually govern data, especially citizen data. And there will have to be some degree of harmonization, both intra-Africa between the nations, but also outside with the territories, the regions, and we talked last time about the fact that there are kind of basically two or three different global models for data protection. And, you know, as Africa exploits the potential for intra-Africa trade, then there needs to be harmonization within the African continent. But obviously, simultaneously, you know, African companies will want to look as well to markets outside of Africa. So there will need also need to be harmonization outside into those two or three big models. And I think that there is stuff to learn from the challenges between the models that already exist. And I hope that across Africa, data protection is understood as needing to have some degree of that harmonization because the concern will be that otherwise you'll have a couple of very fast leading countries that establish the approach which may sit rather uncomfortably with some of the other regions, some of the other countries in the continent. And I think that could potentially slow down the progress of developing the kinds of solutions we've been talking about. I hope that that integration approach is being led with real passion and drive for the continent as a whole. Awesome. I think at that point we've come to the end of today's episode. I have really enjoyed all the anecdotes and your personal stories. Ethics and AI. So maybe I'll just let you sum up this episode about ethics and AI, about what you would want the listeners to take home as the main points from today's discussion. Thank you, Eric. I mean, I suppose essentially we started off by talking about the fact that artificial intelligence ethics are part of 
business ethics, right? They're part of the question about how do we as organisations and in the context of organisation, I would include governments as well, but how do we as organisations understand what it means to be responsible 21st century organisations? And so I don't think that they should be treated separately from that fundamental question, but the specifics of artificial intelligence questions around ethical behaviour really stem into three key areas. The first being fairness. How do you make sure that differential outcomes offered to human beings are offered fairly? The second is trustworthiness. How do you ensure that a self-teaching algorithm is not suffering from algorithmic drift, that it's still doing what you expect it to do in the way that you expect it to do it. And the third is around safety and sustainability, uh, which really asks questions about how will the outcomes of any artificial intelligence system that you develop have a potential for a negative impact on our world, whether that's on human beings in our world or on the sustainability of our planet. Awesome. Thank you very much. So I think uh, we're going to the end of this episode and we'll be looking forward to the next.